Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features Marwish Chishti, a multimedia artist who initially trained as a miniature painter in Pakistan. Her work combines traditional artistic practice with her interest in contemporary politics, particularly the relationship between the US and Pakistan. In 2017, Marwish was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, and in the same year, she held a solo exhibition of her drone art at the Imperial War Museum in London. Her 2018 installation, Naming the Dead, was shortlisted for the Art Prize. She's currently Assistant Professor of Art at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Her drone art series is a remarkable intervention into the violence and injustice of drone warfare. Using traditional painting techniques and borrowing from the iconography of Pakistani and Afghan truck art, her early works are both beautiful and disturbing. As Marwish turned to other media, the unsettling quality remains. Through experiments with toy drone models, sculpted foam, and most recently, sonic installations. But her work extends beyond drones into the tensions and possibilities of borderlands, making her arts practice profoundly relevant to our times. Marwish Chishti, Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Let's begin at the beginning. What brought you to make art about drones? It all started when I visited Pakistan in 2011. Um, and I have been living in US for quite some time before that uh, and had not visited uh, back home for, for, for many years. So I noticed that there was a... Um, uh, a, a big change when I when I visited that I was uh, walking down the street um, outside my grandmother's house and I saw these men behind sandbags with their clashing coves just uh, out in the intersection and uh, to me that was really shocking because that is not what I had experienced when I lived in Pakistan when I was doing my bachelor's there so I wanted to know a little bit more about the political situation there. And that is when I started to find out that um, uh, the, this, it was quite unsettling. Uh, and it was, um, and I started to find out more about uh, what was happening with US-Pakistan's relationship and that there were drone strikes that were conducted by CIA at the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that sort of um, was a trickling down effect of that that I was seeing in the city of Lahore. Um, so I um, started to do my research from there. I just wanted to know more about what drones look like, what they are, uh, particularly weaponized drones that uh, carry missiles and they're, they're killing people at the border. And uh, that, that was really the starting point. And then uh, the research went from there into m- many different projects. 
in uh, in the talk that folks will hear, you'll talk a bit about those projects and we'll put a link in the show notes to your website so that people who are listening can go and check out the artworks themselves or, and your, um, your records of those works. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about your... Um, your training as an artist, and in particular, uh, your background in in miniature painting. Um, and I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what that was like and, and how that has sort of informed your art practice since. Yes, miniature painting is a very particular genre of painting that is specific to that region of India, Iran, present-day Iran, Afghanistan. And I was really drawn to that practice because of its regional association and also because of the sort of uh, style in painting and the historical aspect of why the paintings became important and why they were done in that particular fashion uh, was of interest to me. And I um, studied uh, and learned to uh, make my own paper, learned to make my own paints um, and my own brushes from squirrel tail hair. Um, so all of that was fascinating to me for various different reasons. I felt like I would be self-reliant artist who do not have to rely on purchasing my materials from anywhere and I can make art wherever I am. Uh, it later on um, became even more interesting when I, uh, when, when I was, um, uh, you know, when I was doing this drone art series that I, um, uh, started to think about uh, a format for representing the, the the issues that I was thinking of representing in the work. And it, it, then it came back uh, into the works and it, it seemed more appropriate to work in that style. Uh, have the squirrels of um, Amherst, Massachusetts learned to be afraid of your, of your presence? Uh, are, they, are they worried that they might become brushes? I, I actually still have my brush from back from college days. So I did not have to get more squirrel tails. <laughs> so they don't know I, that's what I do, maybe. Um, that's good. I can yeah, imagine you kind of moving through the campus and squirrels just fleeing. Good thing there there's plenty of squirrels here for sure. <laughs> if I ever need another brush. Uh, so your drone art series has become really quite well known and much discussed in academic writing about drones and drone warfare. I'm curious, though, how you reconcile aesthetic beauty with these threatening subjects. That That is a very interesting question because I have been thinking a lot about that, how the paintings function, how, uh, how I am approaching this topic when I'm making them so bright, colorful, and uh, beautiful in some ways. But I have, I think that the, the, the beauty or the idea of these brightly colored paintings is to attract the viewer to the work, to the subject matter. And the way that I am hoping that the paintings would function is that they're drawn into the work through its beauty and through its iconography and symbolism. And then later through further reading is that you, you are revealed of the information that it provides, which is, uh, which contrasts what, what it may appear to be in the, in the very beginning. Um, uh, a work that is, I think, has a different kind of beauty to it of yours is your Hellfire installation, which is 406 
Hellfire missile replicas cast in foam and painted a very distinct black. Um, I've been struck by it by that work um, because it's it presents a kind of bleak contrast, at least in color, to to much of your work. So, can you tell us a little bit about the process that led to to you working in these like sort of um, in such a stark form? Yes, I I think that yes, that is true. It's very different. It's not other paintings are very extremely colorful and bright and vibrant, and this installation is very has ab absence, or you could say even presence of all colors, and maybe that's what creates it, makes it black. Um, black in itself, that particular black pigment that I've used for that installation and for other works later on, uh, was very controversial. Uh, this was right around the time when Benta Black came out, which was uh, a pigment that was uh, meant to be uh, used only by an artist, a British Indian artist, Anish Kapoor, and no, none other artist could use it. He had the license to use it only. It was the deepest, darkest black that you could find on earth, which is sort of the same technology that they use for stealth bombers so that their patina is this matte black so the radars would not detect them at high altitude. And I was thinking about um, this whole controversy around Venta Black, and then there was another company that came uh, that came up with this Black 2.0, which which they said they would make a, make it available to all artists except for Anish Kapoor. And I thought to myself, I have to work with this. I have to make something with this. So that is exactly how it all started was that I wanted to work with this particular black, black 2.0. And then it started to become, uh, you know, I was thinking about this experience of um, being hit by hellfire missiles and, uh, you know, thinking of what, what it would be like if, if the viewer walks into the gallery and is confronted by a massive huddle or uh, herd of these uh, missiles. And that is exactly what I, want, uh, what I went ahead and did with this particular installation. So these are 406 uh, Hellfire missiles that, um, uh, that are casted in foam. So they're extremely lightweight and then individually hand painted with this acrylic paint called Black 2.0. I I have wondered what the feeling would be like to kind of round a corner and have those missiles staring at you. Um, I, I, I imagine there's a kind of uh, um, a moment of being sort of struck by it where you actually can't quite decode what it is that you're staring at. Uh, and I'd imagine that the, that the recognition um, is a pretty interesting process. Um, your work has been written about a fair bit by... Um, by scholars, and I'm wondering what it's like um, having your art engaged with in a scholarly fashion. Uh, do you ever read what people what people write? Yeah, yes, I absolutely do. Uh, it's it's extremely flattering when some uh, when somebody writes about my work, and I, I get a different perspective or or their read on the work. Uh, particularly, I was uh, just thinking about Rana Kapadia, of course, Insurg uh, in, uh, Insurgent Aesthetics, uh, his book, uh, and he talks about uh, a very uh, unique way of talking about the work that I, I think I've, uh, you know, some things I've thought of and some things that I may not have looked at it from that particular perspective. 
I also think that um, through the years, having been shown in group exhibitions with other artists, my work has also been become in conversation with other works of art that I find very intriguing because it creates a different narrative. When I have a selection or collection of my works in a solo exhibition, all being displayed with each other as opposed to being displayed with some other works, it definitely creates a different narrative. Um, there's a lot of books that I've read just to educate myself about um, about the drones because uh, uh, you know there there hasn't been a lot of information as as a visual artist I've uh, I, I wanted to know more about the visuals there is uh, image search that uh, was very intense in the beginning but uh, soon realized that maybe I'm not going to have enough on that end. So what can I do to educate myself so that I that would inform my uh, visual imagery in some sense? Um, so there is a uh, Gregory uh, Chemayu's um, drone theory book. Uh, I think it was extremely useful to read about killbox and all the spe specifications of different particular reasons why why these things function or or don't function well uh, and their limitations were very important then there is book uh, uh, under the drones by bashir and cruz um, pw singers wired for drone uh, i'm sorry wired for war um, uh, playing with fire pamela constable's book um, so all of these are uh, something that they, they've informed my work in some way or another. Hmm. And um, it's great information. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you've been in shows with a number of um, artists who work in and around drones and that many of those artists, it's, it's uh, similar collections of artists. You've been in, you've been in a number of shows with uh, people like Joseph Delap and James Bridal and, and other people. Um, and I'd imagine there's a bit of a, a crew of you who, um, who are, who appear and reappear together. I'm wondering, um, are there any, um, uh, whether it's those artists or other artists who've worked on, um, drones and drone warfare, are there, are there any artists or their work that really speak to you? Uh, yes, actually, I mean, uh, besides all of these artists that we talked about, I um, actually for my uh, Basant portraits of the children that are uh, that I created in on stainless steel with black 2.0 was directly inspired by this artist collective who did a project called Not a Bug Splat. Um, they created a portrait of a girl that died in drone strike and created an extremely large replica of a half-tone image of um, that, that girl and had laid it on the floor so it could be viewed up from the sky uh, by the drones themselves. So I really um, liked how they had, uh, you know, making, making the, the dead more visible and making the subject matter more visible and, and, and the way that you were using land art to create something. Um, that was more meaningful. So I, I definitely lo loved their project. Um, and on top of that, of course, the other artists that we talk um, that that uh, that have been an inspiration or artists that I've shown with uh, James Bridal, Trevor Paglin, uh, Joseph Dilap, uh, you know, this continues. Um, in the talk that 
uh, people will hear in just a minute, um, you're going to talk about some of your new projects that move your work outside drones and more into the space of borders and um, cultural interactions across and between those borders. I'm just wondering, is do you know where your work will head next? Will it stay in the borderlands or or will it explore somewhere else? I think I'm still exploring the border, borders for sure. Uh, really interested in what what happens just, just within the Pakistan borders. I, I have not even touched the Iran border yet. I, I don't know where where would that go. Uh, but of course, the drone art series is direct relationship with Afghanistan and Pakistan border, uh, and several projects have come from from branched out of that. And then uh, Vaga border series that I will be talking about in my talk later on, and uh, Danyar uh, that shares Pakistan and China border, um, and then Vaga Atari border is India and Pakistan border. So it is kind of sort of continues. Uh, my current project that I'm working on at the moment is a collaborative project between me and an Indian American artist. And we're thinking about um, looking at our roots and what unites us, which is Indus River. So we're traveling to our own respective countries, looking at historical archeological sites and taking in that information and sharing that in a visual format where it would be displayed in a gallery um, altogether. So our work will be in conversation with each other's works. And hopefully we'll be able to show that project in India and Pakistan uh, simultaneously. So maybe her work could be shown in Pakistan while my work would be shown in India. Um, so we're trying to think of this, creating this um, conversation around the works where art can travel without passport and artists can't. And I, I know that I will have hard time getting visa to India. And so would probably she. So it's, it's, this is where the conversation with, with the showing of the artwork also becomes sort of political. Well, it all sounds wonderful. And as a big fan of your work, I'm really excited to see where it goes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate it, Mawish. Thank you so much, Michael. And now, here's Marwish Chishti with her talk, Cultural Aesthetics and Borders. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, I would like to begin this event by acknowledging that I am on Nonotuk land. I am a Pakistani born immigrant who grew up in Saudi Arabia, a foreign land that to which I could not never belong to. I later on moved to my birthplace, Lahore, to complete my bachelor's in fine arts with concentration in miniature painting, a regional technique that dates back to the 13th century in Persia, which is present day Iran. I chose to specialize in this particular, um, specialize in this particular genre is because of its historical context, but also because of its emphasis on stylization involving hierarchical proportion, storytelling, and recording of the historical events. My training in traditional miniature painting is apparent in my work, starting a painting from a neutral background by staining the paper with tea is a very common practice in this genre that I used extensively in my work. 
Use of arbitrary perspective becomes more pronounced at times as well, uh, like in this uh, painting on the left and title from 2013. I've also been influenced by placement of bright colors and working with gouache. And I'm interested in combining these traditional materials and techniques with more conceptual archival aspects of my art making. My primary interests include traditional folk art forms, politics of war and artificial intelligence, as well as its implications in the modern warfare. Painting is my preferred language of communication on materials such as paper, wood, or plastic. My drone art series involves two distinct yet contrasting visual elements, which are colorful and bright symbols and unmanned aerial vehicle, also known as drones. The symbols are influenced by Pakistani folk tradition of truck decoration, also known as truck art. I will discuss both of these influences briefly and also discuss how they relate to my research, to me and to each other. I'm interested in the juxtaposition of terror with representation of cultural beauty. It is important to note that the US and Pakistan have always had good working relationship, even after 9-11. In fact, the two allies joined forces to eradicate Islamic extremists following this event. So it was interesting to me to find out um, the wit or for me to witness the aftermath that led to the attacks of killing Pakistani civilians. I followed my family's path and moved to US in 2005 and did not visit Pakistan again until 2011. In those six years, a lot had changed. Prior to 2005, visiting Lahore was peaceful. When I returned back in 2011, I took these pictures from my cell phone while I was walking down the streets towards my grandmother's house at an intersection in Lahore. And I was disturbed to see these gunmen standing behind sandbags with clashing poles in the middle of the street. I wanted to know why this shift occurred, which led to some revealing conversations with the family members. Not to mention that Pakistani news media was painting a very different picture of the international political situation when compared to US at the same time in the US uh, as in US was minimizing these events. This has a lot to do with Pakistan's geographical and political position. We are neighbors with countries like Iran, Afghanistan, China, and India. And for obvious reasons, US was more than ever interested in maintaining their alliance with Pakistan and Pakistan favored US's involvement in the region with hopes that they would help eradicate Islamic extremists. US drone policy to conduct targeted killing of the terrorists um, had given rise to some very ethical concerns that also concerned me as a Pakistani civilian, but also as an American citizen. Becoming a dual citizen has allowed me to have a unique perspective and understanding of the both sides of this arbitrary war. Most of the drone strikes have taken place at the AFPAC region, which is a rugged borderland region that joins Afghanistan to Pakistan. Transparency within the drone program remains critical so independent agencies started to emerge to collect data and record all the casualties. The numbers collected by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, an independent organization based in London, 
are striking and reveal a very deeply concerning number of civilian casualties. The CIA uses the term collateral damage to describe these civilian casualties. I know for the fact that US is not at war with Pakistan and never was. So Pakistani civilian casualties as a direct result of this covert war operation did not make sense to me. Further research revealed to me that drone strikes are used as a recruiting tool by some Islamic extremists, and also that the surgical precision target killing is not so precise. To mo the more I read, the more I wanted to know. As a visual artist, I'm also curious about what the drones look like. To, to my surprise, I did not find too many images of drones online. Uh, Wikipedia is an open forum for anyone to provide information in where is where I found some detailed renderings of these drones. In 2011, I received an email from uh, Mark Miller, a concerned US citizen who created few renderings of the drone. And he told me that back in 2009, he was searching for some images of RQ-170 and um, he could not find too many images. He only came across two very grainy photos online that he used um, photogrammetry technique to smooth out the pixels of that those four images and he created his own 3D rendering of this particular drone and he shared that on Wikipedia. What he found out later really shocked him. He saw his renderings being used by news media because they also did not have access to better photos of this particular drone. RQ-170 is also known as Beast of Kandahar something that I've been thinking uh, during this process of researching these drones is their names and their relevance. These military drones fly at a very high altitude, about 25,000 to 50,000 feet and can hover over for hours. So they cannot be spot easily. The physical presence of drones in the region contrasts with the visual absence of these deadly machines over hours of surveillance. When I first saw images of drones online, I started to question the photographs I found. Who is the photographer? Where is the photographer? And as a result, how authentic is this photo? The images in newspapers seemed more like artistic representation as um, they were creating some sort of visual narrative that was of interest to me as a visual artist, particularly in this uh, news clipping. Um, clearly narrates a very uh, interesting uh, juxtaposition of these two images. So I began to, um, I began designing my own visuals of drones to create movement and animate them. Uh, since there is no video documentation of how a Hellfire missile would usually be launched from an MQ-9, I decided to create my own rendition and interpretation based on my research of a hellfire being launched horizontally, eventually falling vertically before it hit the ground. In this process, I hope to make the foreign and distant appear familiar and intimate. My aesthetic practice defines new ways to disclose the unseen and unsaid of contemporary US global state violence. My first introduction to any form of visual arts growing up was this type of moving works. Growing up in Saudi Arabia, I did not have access to any art museums or art galleries, but these vehicles intrigued me every time I visited Lahore growing up. 
Decorating moving vehicles is a very common practice in Pakistan. In fact, virtually all privately owned trucks are decorated with colorful imagery, symbolism, and iconography. Jamal Ilyas wrote a book called On Wings of Diesel, in which he provides a unique window into Pakistan's complex society that addresses complex questions of culture and religion. It is very expensive for truck owners to hire truck painters to decorate these vehicles, typically costing around 3,000 to 5,000 US dollars. It can be as high as 16,000 to adorn a truck. The practice of vehicular decoration and maintain, uh, maintenance is very fascinating to me. Even more fascinating is the concept that decoration never consumed the status as the primary function of the truck yet truck decoration is pervasive across Pakistan. These works of art range from fantasy landscapes to portraits of politicians and film actors. The messages on these trucks visually and prominently convey sociopolitical attitudes as well as concerns with contemporary issues in direct contrast to the invisibility of the drones in the sky. When I started looking deep into the history of truck art um, I started to find out that this practice had historical links with the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. The practice of truck decoration was once very common in Afghanistan and during the Soviet invasion 1979 to 89, a lot of Afghanis migrated to Pakistan through the same border where the drone strikes are taking place currently. And they brought this practice with them, which Pakistanis soon adopted Effects of politics and war can be seen in everyday life. And over here, I'm going to quote Ronak Kapadia's book, Aesthetic Insurgent. I quote, um, in times of contemporary forever war, the proof almost always takes the form of visual evidence, a dominant ocular logic that represents the prevailing sensorial relation to the war and the empire, unquote. Imagery of warfare, becomes a part of daily lifestyle and at times is even used in domestic household items. As an example, I'm sharing with you the Afghan war rugs that were very common during the Soviet invasion when Afghani women were weaving the rugs that depicted the imagery of war. This tradition and practice still continues and now they depict images of drones. Once again, functional objects that use decoration for pure aesthetic. And going back to my paintings, uh, combining this research together, in this particular painting that I'm sharing with you, the detail uh, shows different types of imagery that I use to depict the deadliness of the drone in a more stylized fashion. Many of the deadliest animals in the world are brightly colored, like these paintings. Um, the question then comes to mind is that, is this a warning or an invitation? Some of the visual imagery in my work is directly borrowed from truck art genre, but sometimes I improvise. Visual manipulation of the drone silhouette became more, even more prevalent in my work as I started to explore more images online of drones since there weren't much um, that I could find. I use eyes to draw the viewer into the work and also refers back to the surveillance aspect of the drone themselves. The viewer is looking at a painting while the painting is looking at back at you. 
I find it very interesting that the detail of the work brings the viewer into it and is the first thing that people usually notice until they realize what the overall image is conveying. What is it like living under the drones? People probably see a dark silhouette when they look up in the sky on a clear, clear day. Recognition of flying objects by their silhouette hence becomes a survival mechanism. And that is my first step in the process of creating these works of art. After I had exhausted all the online images that I, then I started to purchase unmanned aerial vehicle modeling kit that allowed me to build these structures and then photograph them from different angles so that I could have silhouettes um, from, uh, from different perspectives. And that opened up a lot of possibilities. It was not until later that I decided to actually paint the physical objects and experiment with their shadows. This is one of the other series uh, within the drone artworks. Uh, it's called Killbox. Killbox depicts the aerial view within a grid-like pattern to suggest the view of the land for a drone operator on a monitor. It is estimated that AGM-114 Hellfire missile that is attached to a Predator drone has a kill zone of 15 meters. In this particular inst installation, uh, the impressions in clay and on mylar were created from plastic frames that came with the modeling aircraft that I brought from eBay and Amazon. I'm also interested in creating the narratives by showing different installations together. This is a close-up view of one of the installations where I've casted 406 Hellfire missiles in foam and hand painted them with acrylic paint, uh, very specific paint called Black 2.0, which came as a response to Venta Black. More than 400 drone strikes have hit the tribal region of Northwest Pakistan since 2004. I designed a socially engaged project named after the Bureau of Investigative Journalism project called Naming the Dead. Naming the Dead is, was a collaborative effort to create connection between US citizens and Pakistani civilians killed in the CIA drone strikes. Utilizing the data collected by Bureau of Investigative Journalism, I asked Americans of the same age and gender to read the name of the Pakistani deceased civilians from a list in order to relate to and to start a dialogue. The list contained 354 names, including two females and several children. For this project, I wanted to go to the heart of this country, away from any border. So I was invited by an artist residency in Nebraska City to conduct this project. Uh, it was a very small town with the total population of roughly a little over 7,000 people back in 2017. As a result, of an accumulation of those audio recordings, I created this audio, video, video, visual audio and visual installation um, that comprised of these upside down hung surveillance domes that were installed in the gallery at average height of a specific age group. And these were each equipped with MP3 players and a mini speaker. So they would omit audio of Americans saying, saying the Pakistani deceased civilians names. Visitors were invited and were able to interact with the installation voluntarily and involuntarily by stepping on the names post pasted on the floor. Larger and bold names 
were names of people that I was, uh, the names that I was familiar with, such as those belonging to friends and relatives. The names Nyla and Kamran here are actually my parents' names. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about another collaborative and socially engaged project that allowed me to bring the two countries and two borders together. Basant Let's Go Fly a Kite was a project um, that was also collaborative. Pakistani areas that border Afghanistan remain fragile and risky for children to come out and enjoy any sort of outdoor activity. Unofficial reports have suggested that hundreds of people have been killed in Pakistan by drone strikes conducted by CIA, up to 200 were children. Amnesty International invited drone strike victims and their family members from Pakistan to visit Washington DC back in 2013. And they were asked to talk about their lived experience there. One boy mentioned that how he now prefers cloudy days because drones don't fly on those days. This led me to think about this project. This project was driven by the annual cultural event, Basant, a famous kite festival that takes place in late January, early February, marking the start of spring is celebrated by people of all faiths in Pakistan. There is a long established tradition of flying kites and hosting fairs. Children fly kites to mark the auspicious occasion by holding competitions. In Pakistan, the sky is filled with colorful kites of various shapes and sizes in the month of February. Common local kites are made out of thin paper and woods, wooden sticks that can be easily torn or become weak in wisty, misty weather, since the sport cannot be enjoyed on cloudy days when drones do not operate. This led me to towards this project, which had three main components. First, in March of 2018, I worked with children in US who were living at the edge of this country in high tension border city, San Diego, which borders Tijuana, Mexico. I conducted a kite making workshop with Roosevelt International Middle School that was sponsored by the Spanish Village Arts Center in San Diego and children designed kites made out of weather resistant materials here in the US to send as a gift to Pakistani children. Then I went to Pakistan in April of 2018, where I visited the border areas of Pakistan and gave children these handmade durable kites that they will hopefully allow them to enjoy this activity even on cloudy days and claim their space. At Sonia Shah Memorial School in a small town of Kangra, I work with mostly girls where they design and decorated kites for children in San Diego. I brought those kites with me to California when I visited in February of 2019 for the final step of this year long project. The, and finally, the outcome of this project was that I planned a live event that allowed children from the two border countries to see each other and communicate with each other in real time. My hope was to shorten the distance between these border conflict areas and allow for a more personable connection. I apologize, I cannot show this video, but it was really sweet video. It was not planned at all, it was not rehearsed. Um, but the children were able to interact with each other um, even after, even with the language barrier. And it became more like a talent show, which I was not expecting at all. 
focusing on the children that I have worked with at US-Mexico border and Pakistan-Afghanistan border, I have created abstract portraits that demand distance for clear visibility, obscuring the image to a blown up passport picture format and applying deepest black as an alternative to the black used on stealth bombers so that they cannot be detected by radar on a very expensive reflective stainless steel surface, I'm confronting the viewer in the present environment to reflect upon the future. The future of drones is here, and in my opinion, ethical use of these war machines in combination with transparency in their implication is critical. I'm not against advancement in technology, but clearly drones have been put to use before their advancement, and hence many are paying the price. Now I would like to move on to another project that relates to borders um, and this deals with um, Pakistan border to China. Last summer, I embarked on a journey from Lahore, my hometown to Danyar, which is a small town in northwest, northeastern Pakistan um, and in search of a, a particular individual that I had read about in a newspaper. His name is Ali Ahmadi. Ali is a local civilian from Danyar who has been sweeping the graves of Chinese workers for many years to pay respect and to honor their sacrifice. This cemetery is the final resting place of 88 Chinese workers that lost their life building the Peace Highway in the Karakoram Ranges. China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is also known as CPAC, is a collection of infrastructure project that is currently under construction throughout Pakistan. The plans for this project is to stretch the corridor from the Chinese border to Pakistan's deep water port on the Arabian Sea. To me, Ali's sacrifice and commitment is a perfect representation of the eternal friendship between Pakistan and China. I see this project as an extension of my previous projects that combine my interest in Pakistani traditional folk art and culture and co contemporary politics. Following the Indus River, going from flatlands of Punjab region to the mountainous regions of the Karakram Ranges, I arrived at the cemetery after five days on the road. I asked around for Ali, not knowing if he was even alive and was greeted by his son, who has now assumed the duties of his father as Ali is not working anymore because of his old age. This is uh, Ali Ahmadi's son, who is actually cleaning the grave of the Chinese workers. This journey was recorded by a GoPro camera attached to my car window. And I had shared this experience in a video a uh, five channel video format in a gallery setting. I'm going to just quickly share some of the images of while I was editing the video uh, of my experience of driving five days from Lahore to Danyar and creating that link again with truck art and the pervasiveness of truck art in Pakistan. And finally, the last project is Waga Atari border. The next project will take us to a very different um, looking border of Pakistan, which is uh, Waga Atari, India and Pakistan border that displays an everyday ritual around sunset that is witnessed by thousands of patriotics on both sides of the border. 
Pakistani Rangers show off their rehearsed performance in which their moves are well coordinated with the Indian soldiers. They celebrate the ritual of separation while lowering the flags and closing the border for the day, which reopens the next morning for people to cross migrate. The ritual is highly seductive, where both soldiers are continuously trying to outdo each other. Not to mention that their, um, um, their wardrobe is also really fascinating. In this series of paintings, I am removing the background and the physical presence of the border itself to highlight the tension and play of power. In 1947, partition of India and Pakistan led to the largest mass migration in human history of some 10 to 15 million people with Muslims migrating from present day India to present day Pakistan and Bangladesh, which, is the e which used to be East Pakistan. My current project that I'm still working on is a collaboration between me and an Indian American artist where we're not focusing on our differences, but rather on what unites us. Um, and our research is basically, we're looking at Indus, Indus River and ancient civilizations that were formed around Indus River and looking at that from our own respective countries are from India and I'm from Pakistan. So I'm looking at um, Dharma Rajika site, which is uh, part of UNESCO's World Heritage Site in Texala. And we are creating works in response to these sites that we visit that we hope to bring together in a gallery setting. And I would like to just end here. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.